This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Over the past few years, we've had my cousin, Tom Stella, on, because Tom is a bright guy who has his finger on the pulse of spirituality in America, something I'm sure he would probably very humbly deny, but uh, his books speak for themselves. He's been on Common Threads talking about Uh, his first book, The God Instinct, then A Faith Worth Believing, and Finding God Beyond Religions. He has a new book now, which is called CPR for the Soul. And it wouldn't be uh, a book event without an appearance of Tom Stella on Common Threads. So we welcome once again Tom Stella. Let me tell you a little bit about my cousin, He's been sharing his spiritual wisdom with the world for years, um, and he has been with the Congregation of Holy Cross, and uh, he has ministered to thousands of people in parishes, hospitals, hospices, and on campuses for over 30 years. He's the co-founder and director of Soul Link Inc., a spiritual director, a retreat facilitator, a corporate chaplain for Centura Health which is a Catholic and Adventist health system headquartered in Denver, Colorado. He holds a Master's of Divinity degree from Notre Dame, an MA in Counseling from University of Michigan, and an STM in Spirituality from the Jesuit School of Theology in Berkeley. We welcome once again to Common Threads, my cousin. Hi there, Tom. Good to be with you. Thank you. Yes, certainly, certainly. Um, You know, this is an interesting time for both of us, and, and I want to pay a little homage right now. Every time you've been on in the past, and it has been a few years since your last book, but uh, every time we've been on, we've talked about our family connection, and in particular, your mother, Pearl Stella, who not only was my aunt, but uh, my godmother, and she recently passed away. And uh, we've been talking before the show that uh, uh, I had to miss the funeral due to uh, travel plans, uh, but uh, I, I was able to come in and say goodbye to her uh, uh, shortly before her transition. She was 98 years old, and she was without a doubt the matriarch of our family, uh, the, the the extended family, and not not just your branch of the family. It's quite clear, and. Uh, the home in which she lived was a great gathering place for family. And I thought we would begin this show by you perhaps reflecting on what, what characteristics, what attributes of your mother do you see reflected in this latest book, CPR for the Soul? What, in what ways did she reflect that uh, that divine light that you say we we all have inside of us. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a good starting point, Brad. Thanks. Um, <clears throat> I uh, 
did the homily at her uh, funeral and uh, spoke to some of that, especially uh, what I refer to as her down-to-earth spirituality. She would not have considered herself a spiritual person. Uh, she went to bed most nights with a rosary in her hand, but it was the work of her hands that was really uh, embodied that spiritual presence, her, uh, her service, her care for others, especially in the realms of uh, cooking and gardening. Um, she created an ambiance and an atmosphere that I think fed people's souls as well as their bodies. And um, so, yeah, that, that mostly, she was a very down-to-earth, practical person. But that's what I see um, spirituality as being, not disembodied, that's spiritualism. Spirituality honors the human and the earthy and the everyday. And that's kind of what I try to do in the book, to uh, say that um, we need to find the divine, however we uh, understand that, uh, within our everyday lives. Would you and say she, she did. Would you say that uh, she was a little bit more Martha than Mary? <laughs> I would. Absolutely, yes. Uh, again, not uh, a contemplative person, but one who uh, engaged in life. And that's interesting that you bring that up, because the, uh, the Greek word that describes Martha is marismos, which means pulled asunder. And that's very different than being busy. I would say that my mom was a busy person when she was capable, in her younger years especially, but not pulled asunder. Now, she didn't lose herself in what she did. So she was Martha, but uh, had enough Mary in her to stay centered. Sure. Uh, I'll tell you, as far as um, spiritual, it, it, encouraging my spiritual growth, let me tell you a, a little story. Nobody knows this. I've never told another soul this story. But I remember uh, I was probably 12, 13 years old, and we were in your basement. Um, I, I, I can't remember if this was the uh, house on Wisconsin Street or, or the one in Rosedale. Regardless, it was just you. No, I mean, not you. It was just your brother, Michael, um, your mother, and myself. And... It was a time of, certainly, of, of racial tension in Detroit. And I'm not ashamed to admit that my parents were not the most enlightened people when it came to racial relationships, the understanding of racism and all of that. They, they, they just weren't. And, and clearly in our family, uh, there has been an evolution over the years of uh, the, the understanding of um, of again racial racial relationships, um, racism, and and all of that. But back, uh, you know, this is probably like the late '60s. There really wasn't a whole lot of that, and that was clearly reflected in me. I did not have the most enlightened understanding of uh, race and uh, all that goes with it. And I remember asking your mother in front of Michael. Michael was was a teenager. Uh, he might have even been in college, and I said, kind of, kind of jokingly, "What would you do if Michael brought home a black girlfriend?" And I was expecting, simply because of who our family was at that time, 
what my parents were and all that. I just expected her to uh, say something kind of amusing, perhaps, but definitely something that was, um, well, quite frankly, bigoted. And you know what? She didn't. She, she basically just said, well, it, uh, you know, we're all the same. And if, if Michael found someone he truly liked and brought her home, she would be welcome here. And I've remembered that to this day because it was, it was so profound considering the circumstances. Today, you know, if you ask anybody in our family what would happen if uh, somebody brought somebody in from another race, it wouldn't raise an eyebrow. But back then, back then in certain circles, it would. And um, again, it, it affected me profoundly. And I believe that was probably the beginning of my growth as to how I understood things to happen. I'm, so. I'm glad to hear that. I, uh, she was that kind of person, you know, just very accepting and open. <clears throat> and uh, I'm, I'm glad that touched you. Yeah, yeah. So let's uh, get a little bit uh, into your book itself. Now, first of all, one of the reasons I believe that you've titled it CPR for the Soul is because of your work in the the medical field, uh, working uh, for um, Centura. Can you tell us about that chapter in your life? Uh, yeah, that work is, um, I continue to this day, it's a, uh, I'm considered as a corporate chaplain for Centura Health, which, as you said, is a Catholic and Adventist health system. Uh, I once worked in one of their hospitals here in Colorado Springs, so I, I've been in that side of things, but right now I work with their support staff, that is, people who sit in cubes and look at computers all day. It's, uh, it's rare that any corporation, even faith-based or nonprofit, would ha- hire somebody to play that role for their employees. So uh, I consider myself fortunate, and, and the people I deal with seem to appreciate the fact that they have somebody on site who they can talk to. Um, and I did, the contents of this book are brief like page-and-a-half reflections that I write as part of my job. Um, there are probably over 800 people that are in the various offices uh, that comprise Centura, and uh, there's no way I would meet all of them because I'm just up there a couple times a month in Denver. But uh, they all get these reflections via email, and so I decided the feedback was good enough that I wanted to uh, compile them and that is the book, basically. A uh, series of reflections divided into 13 sections that speak to various aspects of life. And again, all of it trying to uh, help people to realize that, that what we long for most deeply is present every day of our lives. Not something we have to hope to encounter in some fashion after we die, which is probably the traditional sense of, you know, we meet our maker. But we meet our maker every day. And, and you have to explain, how is it that Centura is a combination of both Catholic and uh, 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 Adventist, um, not theology, but, but the, makeup, the, the corporate makeup is a combination of Adventists and Catholics? Well, both have a long history in healthcare, And um, I'm not sure, there's about 20 
21 years ago that they uh, came together. And I'm, I wasn't privy to what brought that about. But, um, again, they have long traditions, uh, respect each other's traditions religiously, but also, again, in terms of health care. Lots of cornflakes uh, served there? <laughs> yeah, the Adventists are uh, basically uh, vegetarian. So even the cafeterias in their hospitals uh, they will not find meat. And how about where, where you are, where it's a combination of, of Catholics and uh, Adventists? Well, yeah, there are, uh, but there are, within the system, there are Catholic hospitals and Adventist hospitals. I see. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, my next... Administration, of the, All right. Yes. My, my, next, my, my next question, um, I, I really would like to uh, take a look at the, a retrospective of your career, because in the book, CPR for the Soul, you draw much upon not only your, um, your experience above and beyond what you're doing now, of course. You also draw from your previous books that we mentioned at the beginning of the program. And now that you are at the age you are, I'm wondering what you notice, what, what do you come away with after being in the, uh, the, having the calling that you've had, which, which includes uh, much pastoral work, the training of novitiates, um, leading retreats, preparing couples for uh, weddings, for marriage. What are the common denominators that you see in terms of uh, both both uh, the challenges that people tend to have and also the, the glimpses of enlightenment that come, that come back to you from the people you've worked with? And I realize it's a big question, but it, you, you can take it in small pieces if you'd like. Uh, well, first I would say that uh, <clears throat> I draw from a variety of traditions in uh, creating these reflections, uh, East and West, and, um, you know, the truth is everywhere, and the avenues to it are found in those various traditions. And I, in the dealings that I've had with people in a kind of pastoral way, as you just mentioned, you know, retreats and wedding preparation, uh, hospice, the dying process. We're all looking for the same thing. <clears throat> We're all hungry for the same sense of, uh, of depth and oneness, I think. And uh, so I would say that in, with all the people I've dealt with in various ways, I've found that to be a, a common denominator. How about in terms of do you find yourself or have you found yourself over the years with a particular challenge that that is to say when people come to me for counseling here's here's the the one thing or the two things or even the three things that i'm constantly having to deal with or these people are having to deal with this in their lives or or i could be wrong maybe there isn't one two or three things maybe maybe everyone is so completely different that they all have their different challenges but i i'm suspecting that someone in your position uh ha- tends to deal with similar challenges with people well you know the, the main challenge that i experience with people <clears throat> um, especially when i do spiritual direction which is more of a one-to-one kind of counseling uh, situation is, you know, these are people who are 
searching for and, and longing to uh, to grow spiritually. But I find that most of us are, in that regard, are our own worst enemy, meaning that we're trying too hard to become something we already are. People want to be more spiritual, more prayerful, more more uh, godly, and that's already a reality for everyone. It's our, our failure to be aware of that, uh, which then results in our trying too hard to become, again, something that we already are, someone that we already are. So we get in our own way, I think, in the spiritual life. And that's, again, across denominations um, and, and religious traditions. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads on WGVU-FM. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is my cousin Tom Stella, and we're talking about his latest book, CPR for the Soul. You talk about, in the book, um, I don't know if you use the term embracing our, our dark side, our shadow side, but it's something similar to that. Could you expound on that a little bit? I would, yeah. That, that, that's there throughout much of the book. Um, <clears throat> there is uh, a kind of a reactive sense, I think, that <clears throat> many people have to anything they feel is unacceptable to themselves or to others. That is, that is our, what psychologists call the shadow, our uh, pettiness, our uh, self-interest, uh, things we wish that nobody knew about us, but that are really there universally for all of us. And I, uh, I think that the attempt, it's almost a knee-jerk reaction to overcome that, especially in religious traditions, you know, get over your, your selfishness, your jealousy, your impatience, your sin, basically. You refer to them as dark gifts. Pardon me? You refer to them as dark gifts. Dark gifts, yes. My, a former spiritual director of mine, that's a term that she used, meaning, uh, you know, what we call blessings in disguise. That the very things that, that uh, we feel get in our way may be helpful to us in the long run if we learn to love ourselves as we are, to embrace the reality of our imperfection. Uh, much more healthy, I think, than trying to overcome you know, that which we see as unacceptable. But what about those things, for instance, uh, we, we talked uh, just a few minutes ago about my understanding of race and racism, uh, which was clearly an imperfection. And I'm really happy that with a little bit of your mother's help, I got over that. I improved. What's the matter with saying, no, this is, this is impeding me. I'm, I'm not going to be able to have the relationships I want to have, I, and nor am I going to be able to develop my own understanding of the divine presence within if I don't get over this? How, how do you make the decision that, no, I can, I can hold on to this. I, I like this part of me. I know it's a little bit quirky. I know that it may not be a representation of any sort of uh, human perfection or sainthood, but I like that. But this other thing, this is a real thing, and it bothers people. How, how, do, you, how do you come to that decision? Yeah, well, I think it's a, it's a good distinction to make between um, aspects of ourselves that truly are problematic for us and for society, like prejudice, for instance, racism. There's that, and then there's the awareness of myself as someone who is imperfect. It's, it's the 
acceptance of the imperfection rather than necessarily the particular thing that uh, that I'm trying to uh, make a case for in the book. <clears throat> in other words, um, can I accept myself as somebody who has prejudice, prejudicial attitudes that need to be changed? I think objectively, really, they're not helpful to me or or again to society. But but I think we be, we go farther down that road of growth if we start from a place of self-love or self-acceptance. You know what I'm saying? That, yeah. Uh, I'm not affirming the problem. I'm affirming the person. Sure. And then when we when we affirm ourselves, we're starting our growth on on uh, rich soil. I think where there's the possibility to come for those good things to become rooted. I think somebody who who was very appreciative of the so-called dark gifts would be uh, your dad. He he he, 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 he. We could do a whole show on that. He. He was his own person. He had a, a an acceptance of of whomever he was, and he at, at least the way I saw him, he was rather joyful about it. Your, your dad had this. Uh, he could be very curmudgeonly if he wanted to be, just just really to get people going. But he, I think, he had a self self acceptance that um, was impressive and enviable. That's my take. Yeah, my dad was a terrific person. He had a great joie de vivre. You know, he was he loved life. He had a great sense of humor, <clears throat> and he could be a tough guy. But uh, I think he did accept himself as as he uh, was, and uh, I think that uh, made him even more lovable. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Believe me, you know, in the family, people just talk about their experiences with Uncle Andy and. You know, sometimes, especially if you worked for him at the family company, as some of us did, you you you, you might uh, have a complaint here and there. But uh, regardless, he was just impossible not to love, and and a lot of it was really upon reflection. I I if I didn't read this book, particularly this this chapter on dark gifts, I would not have been able to verbalize it as as I just have. But that's it. He he uh, had this tremendous level of self-acceptance and uh, um, th- that joie de vie that he had was, uh, was quite catchy. Yeah. Yeah. I could, I can actually tell you a little story. I, I told this in a homily at my mom's funeral just a couple of weeks ago, that one of the things that characterized her life was that she spent a lot of time trying to rein him in. And, uh, <laughs> yes. One of the circumstances uh, was at Stella Products Christmas parties when he would grab the microphone and go on and on. Yeah. And she could be heard from a, a table near the front saying, Andy, Andy, that's <laughs> enough, sit down. <laughs> yes. And the other was something you'll identify with was what he called the trap. Yes. Uh, the trap was my father's version of uh, the vision quest trying to uh, <laughs> to initiate his uh, nephews and, and their children into uh, adulthood. He would invite them to his lap and then he would squeeze them between their, his legs until they started to cry. You're <laughs> <laughs> getting great delight out of this. Of course, my mother would rush in from the other room to rescue the young victims. But uh, it was, that's indicative of, of both his um, way of, of going at life and of uh, her response to it. Yes, they, they, they made a, a, a wonderful team 
that way because both both were endearing. Uh, when you were in the trap, you, you didn't feel it terribly endearing, but certainly those of us who are uh, trap survivors, I don't know if you know right. that, but we we have a support group now. And uh, those of those of us who are trap survivors uh, uh, look upon that fondly as much as we do your mother coming to the rescue. So it was. I, I don't know if they plan things in advance, <laughs> whatever. But regardless, it was uh, uh, something to uh, something to hold on to throughout childhood into adulthood. You know, related to uh, your reference to my dad, uh, I opened the book, the introduction with. Uh, by saying, um, the fact that you are not dead is not sufficient proof that you're alive. Now, most people resonate with that right away. You know, we kind of go on half our cylinders sometimes. Well, my dad was somebody who, who went on all those cylinders most all the time. Somebody who was uh, truly alive. Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. He, he, well, again, you said that, uh, that joie de vie. And uh, uh, he could be uh, quite engaged with, uh, with just the small things in life, but just sharing a, a dinner with him. I, I remember one time uh, my brother talking to me. I was here in Grand Rapids. He was in Detroit. And he said, I was over to Uncle Andy and Aunt Pearl's f- for polenta. And he says, I'll tell you what, he says, uh, here's, here's the best news. I go, what? He goes, Andy and Joe. Joe being Uncle Joe, uh, Andy's brother, uh, uh, our common uncle, and uh, just, just listening to them, listening to their colorful lives, listening to them argue, we felt as a sacred experience. It was just, it was just that way. So they're... they're uh, Certainly missed, very missed, very much missed, and uh, so far, no one in the in the family has taken their uh, taken their place. Um, we we are down to the wire right now, Tom. But of course, this is a, a wonderful conversation. I hope it's not too too in or exclusive for everyone listening. It's the problem when you get a couple of Stellas together. Um, but uh, I'd like to invite you back next week, and we can talk more about your book. Love to. Thanks. You've been listening to Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today has been Tom Stella, my cousin, who is the author of his latest book, CPR for the Soul. Please join us again next week here on WGVU. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads.
This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week, we began our conversation with Tom Stella. Tom is my cousin, and he's been sharing his spiritual wisdom with the world for years. His previous books include The God Instinct, A Faith Worth Believing, and Finding God Beyond Religions. His current book, which we'll talk about today, is CPR for the Soul. And Tom has had a, just a, a fascinating personal history. He was a member of the Congregation of Holy Cross. He's ministered to thousands of people in parishes, hospitals, hospices, and on campuses for over 30 years. He's the co-founder and director of Soul Link Inc., a spiritual director, retreat facilitator, rather retreat facilitator and corporate chaplain now for Centura Health, which is a Catholic and Adventist health system headquartered in Denver, Colorado. Tom holds a Master of Divinity degree from the University of Notre Dame, an MA in counseling from the University of Michigan, and an STM in spirituality from the Jesuit School of Theology in Berkeley. We welcome once again to Common Threads, Tom Stella. Hi, Tom. Hi, Fred. Good to be with you again. Certainly. So, uh, last week we, we talked, we, we delved into uh, your latest book, CPR for the Soul, uh, a bit, and I, I want to get a sense from you where you have come from and where you have gone. Over, if one were to look at all four of your books now, if if you start from the God instinct, if somebody sat down with all four of these books and read one after the other, do you think that they would see some sort of trail leading somewhere? Um, or you know, do all four books stand absolutely perfectly on their own? Uh, uh, or or maybe there's always the possibility that you you don't notice any any trail. Do you? Well, here's what I would say: there. They have, each has a distinct focus, in a sense. The God Instinct is uh, my attempt to talk about life from the eyes of a spiritual seeker. Uh, a faith worth believing is basically what I learned growing up Catholic and what I now believe, so it it's more specifically speaks to Catholic teachings, although it's true for all, basically, mainline religions, Christian religions. Um Finding God Beyond Religion is kind of a spiritual understanding of religious truths or teachings. There's some overlap with uh, faith worth believing. And uh, CPR for the Soul is, uh, is a couple of things. It uh, comes from my understanding and my, my experience that uh, there's a lot in life that is a blessed blur. That is, I think of the sacred and secular, time and eternity, humanity and divinity, things that I learned uh, were very distinct from one another. I have come to see those, that line blurred between all of those. And also in that book is the sense that 
when we begin to realize that and live from that truth, we, we're a little out of step with most people. Uh, you know, Thoreau, Thoreau talked about walking to the beat of a different drummer. Uh, this book kind of affirms the, uh, the reality of that and the importance of being able to, to walk or move against the grain where most people in our culture seem to be. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's kind of a, a broad sense of what I see having happened for myself over time. No, I, I, I understand that quite clearly. Uh, and what you just said sort of um, dovetails into what I'm about to uh, introduce right now. You have a section on sensual spirituality, which for some people sound, sounds oxymoronic, but, but clearly it isn't uh, in your eyes. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about what you say on that? Yeah, you know, the poet Mary Oliver says, I, I am sensual in order to be spiritual. And again, I think for most people, those, those are things, again, where that, that line is hard, hard and fast. <clears throat> uh, sensuality being, you know, bodily and, and of our five senses, and spirituality somehow being about uh, a different realm. And I think a case that I make over and over again in the book is that spirituality is about living fully in our bodies and fully in our senses and fully on the earth. And that's where we stumble upon the divine of our understanding, however we would imagine that reality. So, uh, yeah, I think it's uh, basic to the book. And that when we begin to uh, accept that, the sensuality and spirituality are sides of a coin, then our soul is fed and we do become more alive. We're not in fighting something that is so basic to our humanity. You also list uh, signs of healthy spirituality uh, in the book. I'd like to go over some of those. Uh, and uh, the first one is we have a sense of connectedness with others. That should be self-evident, but sometimes it probably isn't. And it was connectedness to what? Connectedness with others. With others, oh, yeah. Yes, uh, the, <clears throat> all too often, especially when it comes to religion, we see um, those who believe other than the way we do as uh, you know anything but connected. But the reality is when we go deeply beneath those very real differences, there is uh, a common ground. You know, the, the mystics in all traditions, the, the Sufis, the, the Muslim mystics, Western mystics, uh, yogis, Hasidim, uh, they all go to the to the bottom, to the core, to the place where we are one. Um, it's just when we fail to surrender to that depth that we stay on the surface of life where there are so many differences. The, uh, the second one, and I would imagine that this can be quite a challenge for a lot of people, and that is to have a healthy self-concept. This isn't something you do with just a, a, a few aphorisms and, and bromides, right? This, this, is, this is real work. Uh, and I'm assuming you have attempted to help people in this. Is there, is there a way that you have prescribed, or multiple ways that you have prescribed for people to, to gain a healthy self-concept? I do spend a lot of time with people around that, but I also 
have to say I, it's taken me time to uh, get that to that place in myself because I think there's a, <clears throat> a kind of a universal situation that we all deal with, and maybe it goes back to the uh, the myth of Adam and Eve, you know, the Garden of Eden. What that story, and it is a story, uh, tells us is that we are often at odds with ourselves. You know, we're outside the garden. And uh, the way to that um, self-concept, I think, has to come by way of uh, accepting ourselves as imperfect. Again, one of those things that I came across in the religion of my upbringing was that imperfection was not okay. You know, we had to perfect ourselves. We had to root out what was considered evil. And, uh, you know, that's a losing battle. So we, we become more healthy in our understanding of ourselves when we accept the reality that we are imperfect, but that that's okay. And uh, that, that is, as you mentioned, no small task to, to overcome that, that uh, instinctual resistance to whatever we feel or have been told is not acceptable. And I, I'm going to go out on a limb and, and guess that you have probably counseled and been the spiritual advisor and confessor for uh, people who, say, have been victims of, of abuse as children, whether it be sexual or, or mm-hmm. physical. Um, and I, from everything that I understand about that and from people I know, that can be just the, the, the largest barrier to cross. Um, have you seen people who have become whole uh, after such a such a lifetime, such a childhood? And if you have, and I'm assuming you 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 have, uh, uh, is there is there any one particular, or are there a couple of of methods? that you have seen that really, really work in, in bringing somebody to that healthy self-concept after, after having such a, a, a horrendous child history? Well, I'm actually dealing with several people right now who have had that kind of experience in their uh, childhood. I'm not sure there's any one way that works for everyone, but uh, certainly it becomes, and this is where the notion of spiritual, spiritual direction and counseling sort of overlap, um, it's a um, it's important that people accept uh, their feelings around all of that, which one of the hardest being anger, even anger toward the perpetrator. Uh, anger is one of those uh, feelings that most of us were taught is not acceptable, but there are times when it's very appropriate. And that anger doesn't necessarily need to be expressed toward the person who perpetrated the evil. That, matter of fact, that person may be long gone, but it's, it's an inner acceptance of whatever feelings one has as a result of what has happened to us. And the other thing I think I try to stress with people is that we are more than what has happened to us. To be able to get in touch with that uh, is one of the things that enables people to you know, look themselves in the mirror and say, I'm okay. But too often we tend to identify with those, again, those things that have happened to us, and then we get stuck there. Sure, sure. It, what comes to mind, uh, I, 
people don't know, I'm speaking to you. You're in Colorado. I'm I'm here in Michigan, and right now uh, we're dealing with the uh, Larry Nasser trial. Are you familiar with the, uh, the 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 doctor who treated those gymnasts and sexually abused uh, uh, like 150 or more young girls? I was just just listening to uh, an NPR uh, account of all of that. Yes. Yeah, and very aware of it. Right. So over the past few days, uh, the judge has had uh, many of these either girls or women in court addressing him right to himself and expressing such rage, such such anger and grief and sorrow. And I've been thinking about that. I've been, uh, I'm glad that they're having this opportunity. I just hope that that they do heal and that they move beyond the anger, not for Larry's sake, but for their own sake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it is important to move beyond that anger, but it's it needs to be acknowledged uh, initially. Absolutely, before it can be moved beyond. Yes, yes, and, you uh, can't just say. Yeah, I hope I hope in their expression of their feelings to him that that that's the beginning of letting it go so that they're not carrying the negativity at the same time that they are not uh, excusing his actions. Exactly, yes. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU-FM. My name is Fred Stella, and with me today is my cousin Tom Stella, the author of CPR for the Soul. Another thing you talk about in um, uh, Signs of Healthy Spirituality is living graciously with adversity, which, of course, like the uh, like the one before, live, uh, having a healthy self concept, uh, is something that for a, a lot of us we have to learn, and oftentimes we learn by example. I'm, I'm curious if you have uh, any examples that uh, that you might draw from when you make every great attempt to live graciously with adversity. Uh, I guess you know the experiences uh, I've had over years in in um, diverse kinds of situations where whether it's uh, was while I was studying or in ministry where uh, dealing not just with a homogeneous kind of uh, population but I think uh, exposing being exposed to uh, a variety of folks whether that be uh, diverse in ethnicity or sexual orientation or religion, that there's been such a richness in being able to uh, accept and be open to the reality that another person, different that they, as they might be from myself, uh, have a wisdom and a wealth of experience and knowledge that uh, I can glean from. So, yeah, just the experience of being with people in a variety of, of uh, ethnically in in other ways diverse situations and uh, another one is of course we pray which which sounds uh, at at first blush pretty easy I mean when you when you talk about things like um, uh, acquiring a, a, a healthy self-concept uh, or living graciously with adversity those sounds like like those sound like things that uh, you you really have to nurture, uh, and that you're not going to be 
It's not something you can just turn on and turn off. Whereas we pray, I think a lot of people would say, well, yeah, I pray. I, you know, it's, that's, that's no big deal. But I suspect that you're talking about a level of prayer that goes beyond simply uh, repeating uh, a, a childhood prayer or just hoping, you know, God, get me out of this traffic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I think healthy spirituality does involve prayer, but not again in those traditional ways. Uh, or not exclusively that way. The thing that's uh, been most influential for me with regard to prayer are those who say that prayer is unmixed attention. Prayer is a full presence to the reality of life in all its ordinariness. And, and the assumption there is that is that the essence of what is is spiritual, that uh, God is not a reality to be found off in the sky so much as a presence that imbues all things. So if that's true, and I, I resonate with that, then the more fully I am present to a tree, to a person, to an experience, to life, then the more I'm engaged and connected to that spiritual realm, which to me is one, I think, healthy understanding of prayer. And I'm going to skip down to the bottom of the list because there are other parts of the book that I I want to ask you about. But the the last one is we wonder. And it's, it's so interesting that I myself come in contact with a number of people over the years who are, would not want to even classify themselves as spiritual. They may be wholly secular agnostic, atheist, whatever label uh, they're, they're, uh, they're comfortable with. Yeah. And yet they still wonder. It, it truly is something that separates us from other sentient beings, I think. Who knows? Maybe my cat wonders what kind of an idiot, idiot I am, but, but I, I suspect that we are able to take wonder to a, a very powerful level. Yeah, I, I believe um, wonder is a uh, is a response. So it's not so much like I'm going to decide to wonder at something. Uh, I, it sort of happens to me if I'm available. And again, that's where a kind of an openness or a, a prayerfulness to life comes in, into play. I can uh, see a beautiful sunset and be un, unaffected by it. Or I can see that and be swept off my feet you know, by the amazing reality of life. And I think that's, um, we have to prepare ourselves for that, for wonder. You know, it's been said that enlightenment is an accident. The spiritual practice makes us accident prone. So by, by for instance, uh, having a practice of meditation, uh, I am preparing myself to be swept off my feet. By, by life as as it happens, and, and I would call that again that being swept up and smitten as a, a form of wonder. I remember an event myself where I was at our beautiful, wonderful, fantastic Lake Michigan, which is a a point of pilgrimage for those of us, particularly on this side of this of Michigan, uh, and. Um, there was a, a beautiful sunset happening, 
and I was at uh, a concert that was uh, uh, not on the beach, but it was in, in, a, in on the porch of a building that overlooked uh, the lake, and the sunset was spectacular. And a woman uh, came up to me to say hello, and then she uh, uh, just pointed to the sun and said, "How can you? How can you look at that and not believe in a creator?" And she was specifically talking about how the beauty of the sun itself and everything that uh, that uh, it encompassed. And it, to me, it wasn't the sunset that was the proof of a higher power. It was the sense of wonder within me. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and yeah. so, yeah, I, I, it's, it's absolutely fantastic when you have those little epiphanies, those, that, 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 mm-hmm. uh, those yeah, aha I think that's moments. Well put. It's, uh, you know, I, I don't think the most beautiful thing in the world necessarily points to uh, you know intelligent design, but the fact that we are able to be to be moved by it says something about the spiritual nature of our humanity. Indeed, indeed. Um, close to the end of the book, you have a chapter on on holidays and holy days. And I found that to be interesting. Um, you're essentially, if, if I'm reading this correctly, uh, giving us an opportunity to rethink uh, holidays and holy days that uh, we, we may have been celebrating or observing our entire life. And I thought perhaps you'd uh, just uh, give a couple of quick examples. For instance, uh, Valentine's Day. I, I thought that was kind of fun that you you put that in there. And you... you Dispel a, a few myths uh, there. Or actually, you, you present the myths and then say, ah, but probably none of them happened. And Because I remember I always have heard uh, conflicting stories of why we celebrate uh, the, uh, it's not the birthday, I think it's the anniversary of the death of Valentine on February 14th. Uh, and, and it turns out that probably none of them was true, is is. That what uh, your your suspicion is? Yeah, you're referring to Saint Valentine, who uh, um, was reported to have uh, done some miraculous things, and uh, <clears throat> again, many of which, or most of which, perhaps all of which, did not really happen. But what his life uh, as a martyr portrays to us is that. Uh, we celebrated Valentine's Day, and we, you know, give gifts to the people we love, which is wonderful. But the gift of ourself in the service of others—that's that's what Valentine's Day should celebrate. So that's that's one example of a holiday, holy day. Uh, another would be, uh, for instance, something like Easter, where in the Christian tradition, it's the celebration of Jesus' resurrection. And um, what I point I try to make is that whatever happened back then, whether it was literal bodily rising or spiritual presence, uh, that the real import of something uh, like Easter or even Christmas is that uh, it has to do with us today. Are we being called forth from what entombs us? Or what what's, what slows us down? What makes us less alive? Is there some spiritual energy in us 
that summons us to new life. That's that's the point I try to make. Sure, sure. I I believe there's a there's a quote from someone. Not you don't say this. You quote someone in the book that uh, if a thousand Jesuses were born on Christmas, uh, if 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 he's not born in me, then what's the point? It, Right. Something along those lines. Right, sure. Right. Um, yeah, I'm blanking on the name of the person who said that. <clears throat> uh, but that's the point. Yeah, it's, if it's not a reality now, then it's, it's nostalgia. And I think uh, real vital religion and spirituality is not nostalgic. It's, it's real, it's present, it's effective in our lives today. Sure. Uh Let's get back to something uh, before we we close today uh, that we touched on last week for ever so briefly, and I didn't I didn't quite mention it uh, uh, today. What you do right now, you are the spiritual chaplain at Centura, so you are in this uh, corporate environment, admittedly nonprofit because it's uh, it's run really by two spiritual organizations, the Catholic Church and the Seventh-day Adventists. But nonetheless, it's still, a, 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 from what I gather, a, a corporate environment. Uh, how do you see uh, the, the corporate life in there? I mean, the fact that they have a chaplain certainly speaks well of them. But at the same time, it is still a professional work environment. And I'm wondering how you see people who work day in and day out, are they able to thrive in such an environment? Or, I I just speak to so many people who are so frustrated, regardless of whether it is a for-profit or a non-profit, but that the corporate culture is is so suffocating. Um, Assuming, and you dedicated the book to the people of Centura, so I'm assuming they must be doing something right Aside from employing you, what, what is that right thing they're doing? Well, they have a mission and values that they uh, attempt to um, embody. And, but you're right, it's very much of a corporate um, atmosphere, and uh, you've got plenty of workaholics, you've got people who are, uh, <clears throat> who are just you know, out for the, for the dollar, and uh, it's, it's very much a mix, but I think it's a mix in a larger context of an organization that, again, has these values. Um, they are uh, they're wonderful people. And you find wonderful people at IBM as well. You know? it's, um, it's not exclusive to Centura or to any faith-based organization. But I think, there's a, again, there's a larger context in which people are constantly, in various ways, reminded that we are an organization that is not just about the bottom line. We're here to serve people. We're here to make the world a better place. We do that through our gifts and our talents. We do it through the organization and the, uh, <clears throat> the uh, um, again, the, the things you'll find in any corporation. But we have an ultimate purpose. I think staying close to that is... Again, something people need to be reminded of, and that Centura, through my position and others, has a way of uh, continuing to put that in front of people so that we don't get too far from it. 
That's uh, that's great. Tom, we are out of time for right now, but I want to thank you so much uh, for being with us uh, today and last week as well. It's been great. As always, it's uh, my pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU-FM. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today has been my cousin Tom Stella, author of CPR for the Soul. Please join us next week here on Common Threads. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. Thank you.